0: Hello, everyone. This is Cameron Bedard and Joshua Caffrey with Homo Juridicus, an ongoing conversation that analyzes law and society and power and politics from philosophical, sociological, and legal lenses. Our podcast episodes are informed by scholarly research made accessible for public discussion by PhD student Joshua Caffrey. Um, and civil rights and criminal defense attorney, Cameron Bedard. That's me. Our aim is twofold. First, we seek to situate current events within a rich discourse that draws on the fields of philosophy, sociology, and law. Second, Homo Juridicus is a real-time critique of law, society, power, and politics. This podcast engages compelling voices from radical and heterodox traditions drawing upon their wisdom to diagnose the situation as such while creating a forum to expand the imaginary and explore real alternatives. So today we're gonna to be focusing on sociology. And really what we're talking about today is what sociology is. Relying on Josh's uh, Josh's expertise, we're gonna start with him. So Josh, can you briefly describe to our listeners what sociology is.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So sociology is, broadly speaking, the study of society. Um, So there is a sociology of law, sociology of culture, sociology of knowledge, political sociology, economic sociology. Um, So the important thing here is even when we're Looking at individual actions, we're studying those individual actions within the framework of social structures and social institutions. So <clears throat> that kind of leads to um, this distinction between structure versus agency. So, again, a, a structure is just a way of um, uh, how society is structured. So uh, there are economic structures or legal structures. For example, those structures, or we can uh, say within those structures we have institutions. We have court systems, we have institutions of higher education, for example, any number, the job place, uh, family, anything that we can think of is going to be an institution within a larger structure. Um, and these structures actually kind of determine, agency. So how people act, how people act in the courtroom is going to be different than how people act in a family situation. It's going to be different than how people act within uh, an academic institution or an educational institution, right? So this agency is kind of delimited by these roles that we have. Uh, for example, as a parent or as a scholar or as a student or as a judge or as a prosecutor, for example, these are going to essentially um, create uh, what we view as as the possibilities for action. Right. So. Um, freedom, it, like uh, when we're talking about action, like freedom is kind of uh, very constrained when we're operating, when we're acting within institutions and within structures. So, so going to this concept of agency,
0: when you're talking about agency, you're talking about human agency, the ability to make decisions within these social constructs mm-hmm. um, and sociology is something that um, helps us better understand that, right? Right
1: yeah it helps us understand that and and just to be clear there's still room for improvisation within these structures but those improvisations are going to be pretty limited right so cam your role as a public defender right you can't just go in wearing like some crazy paisley suit or something you know like there are very specific things that like you i mean you could obviously but but that would be very um Outside of the norm, it would be considered very kind of weird and strange, right? And that's kind of we we understand the structure of society. When people fall out of that structure, when when people break those norms, then it becomes more apparent. Like, oh, okay. Then we have to explain people who fall outside of those norms, right? When people do something kind of strange, or when we talk about homelessness or something like that, like that's when we kind of understand, oh, these yeah. are these are the norms that we take for granted, um, but they only kind of become apparent when they break down for some reason.
0: Yeah, we start to see aberrations when individuals come up against the construct of the norm, for example, exactly. um, or an individual comes up against the construct of the law by violating the law. And it's in those moments where um, it's easier to see and it's easier to distinguish. Hey, we live within this social reality, this social construct. These are the rules of the game, right? Exactly.
1: Yep. Okay. And and we kind of learn. This is important because we kind of learn to internalize this stuff. Like it becomes a, a kind of a part of our consciousness itself. You know, we we internalize it and then we just kind of um, react in situations the way that we are expected to react by other people right like we know what other people expect from us and we act according accordingly uh, not always but a lot of times that's that's kind of how social relationships work and that's why they're they're uh relatively stable over time and and they are um yeah i mean they're the structures of society right like it's not yeah. always breaking down like it's a relatively and th- this isn't like something that uh we need the state for or we need legal institutions for it's just like if you, if you read any anthropological text, uh, you know, looking at other tribal cultures or something, there are myriad ways that we kind of structure social relationships, right? And it's yeah. just kind of a natural thing that people do uh, in structuring these relationships. It's like yeah. the
0: homeostasis of, of norms. We maintain mm-hmm. that homeostasis by adhering to norms that we have socially constructed together, commonly understand in the collective sense and it allows us to ma- maintain that
1: stability when we adhere to those norms, right? Right, exactly. And, th- and that's not to say that these structures and norms don't change or evolve over time. That absolutely does happen, obviously. Um, but this is just to say, like, typically, uh, even these evolutions are kind of stable in themselves like every once in a while you'll have a threshold event where there is kind of a radical break but even those radical breaks often incorporate things from the previous structures and previous roles right yeah yeah i see so it's not a uh any kind of like revolutionary um, instance or event is not going to be like a complete break with the past it's still going to be operating with a lot of the presuppositions that we had in the plat in the in the past and also a lot of those um, aspects of those structures that carry over uh, into the next um, iteration of those, of those structures. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, while we're talking about these structures, you know, do we want to maybe delve into um, how these structures come about? Because I imagine, you know, it's not like this is physics, you know, it's not like Mm -hmm. we are living under the paradigm of gravity, um, right. Th- these are these are human these are human constructs that have evolved and developed over time through the human relation. So maybe we could start to explore that. Talk about um, language and the ways in yeah. which the ways in which human beings create these constructs that we're talking about. What do you sure, think? Sure.
1: Yeah. And this is a pretty foundational idea in sociology as well as just the social construction of reality. So we're, we're not studying celestial bodies. (laughs) We, we don't have the instruments to determine weight, velocity, and stuff like this. Uh, when we're studying human beings, we're fundamentally studying people who are embedded in symbolic, um, universes like language, you know, um, so, Whenever we use language, we are engaged in interpretation as well. We're engaged in the construction of meaning. We're trying to understand one another. And this is a very complicated process, right? So when we're trying to study individuals, we're also studying how individuals relate to one another through language, through morality, through social relationships, uh, through body language, like, you know, there are myriad ways that we interact with one another, but we're also constructing meaning with that. We're also constructing uh, roles for one another with that. Um, and that's essentially the, the social construction of reality, right? Um, it's not the, when we talk about empiricism in the social sciences, it's kind of a different, an empiricism and objectivity in the social sciences, it, it's fundamentally different in that regard from, say, chemistry. Or physics or something like that, because we are always kind of dealing with the the messiness of human <laughs> human consciousness and language and interpretation and all of this stuff. So, so impir- empirical facts in the sociological sense are radically different
0: than empirical facts in the physical world, right? You're talking about, you know,
1: measurements of matter, measurements of velocity, gravity, sure. things like yeah, that. Yeah, but that's that's not to say that we don't collect data in in sociology. But the point is that data, when we interpret it, is always, uh, you know, the the famous kind of study of of Durkheim and uh, his study of suicide is that, look, here are the basic facts. Here's the data. But what explains that data? And so that's where we have to bring back in these social structures. How do the social structures kind of shape uh, human actions such that you know in one country these suicide rates are higher and in other countries it's lower, right? So we start to we have to bring back in those uh, social institutions and um, those symbolic elements. So yeah, that this is also really important to uh, make a distinction between uh, empirical facts, which uh, you know, that's kind of similar to, uh physics, historically, uh, in the history of science, physics has always been kind of like the king of, of the sciences. Um, so, you know, like uh, studying celestial bodies would be kind of the prime example of an empirical fact. Right. But that's not to say that there aren't social facts. And this is really important. Uh, so we're not talking about laws of physics um, when we're talking about social facts. And this is really important and uh, I think is important for our our contemporary moment because I think it's very easy for uh, people on the left to criticize people on the right for being kind of divorced from reality or, you know, not adhering to, um, you know, empirical facts and things like that but there are social facts right a social fact arises when you have a community of language users who kind of agree upon certain things in the world so god is a primary example we can't empirically prove god but for a large segment of the human population that is a social fact i see there are so number... what
0: about like what about free markets, for example? Is that something that would also fit into this paradigm of social facts?
1: Yeah, free markets is getting a little bit complicated. I think uh, the, the, <laughs> the concept of a free market is kind of, uh, I would argue, um, takes some empirical facts, but a very truncated version of empirical facts and develops this kind of social fact about free markets. I mean, if we're talking about like historical facts uh, the history of capitalism is one of expropriating labor from land right Uh, of taking the means of 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 subsistence of people growing their own food um, and essentially making that land private property and forcing people off of that land and forcing them to find jobs in the city and if you look at england uh, with the rise of the industrial revolution there, you actually have all of these laws that force, pe- you know, there are these vagabond laws. And, and, and you're really, talking about the, basically the enclosure acts, right? Yeah, exactly. Where you essentially, um, it's the, you know, this is a historical moment where, where we essentially kind of define our modern conception of private property. And what do you do with a, a lot of displaced people who can't grow their own food anymore? Well, you have to force them into the factory. And so you have to force them into the cities and you have to force them into working. And at one point in time, people considered that kind of wage labor as slave wage labor, like this, even in the United States in the turn of the century, um, 20th century, um, people considered this uh, slave labor, slave wage labor, you know? So um, yeah, I think, now, today, we have this social fact of free markets, but it, it, this social fact is kind of divorced from the historical reality uh, and, and doesn't – and it's a truncated interpretation of reality. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you just – your your freedom – um, that you have is between a lot of uh, corporations that are going to pay you minimum wage. And um, so it's very hard for you to get by as we're seeing in the United States. Right. Right. Now, right? right.
0: And I think this is remarkably illustrative of what these social facts are. Yeah. These social but, facts come into existence through human relations, through language, through sometimes power and coercion, but they don't become social facts until this very human process begins to develop right
1: Yeah and I should also say when we're talking about free markets and why it's kind of divorced from empirical facts is because uh, you know when you just talk about free market this free market that you you kind of ignore all all the complicated legal institutions that form the global marketplace and all of these trade, Agreements uh, that are um, basically written by teams of attorneys, teams of of lawyers working on this stuff, and you have to have courts to enforce that. So, when you say a free market, we have to be very clear that actually this free market is a political project by a very specific group of people in power uh, in the um, marketplace and also in politics, right? So it's kind of like it, if <laughs> if it's born out of that kind of unfreedom how does it become free well that's kind of the social fact, facticity of that you know we kind of ignore all of the um, the ins and outs and nuts and bolts of the construction of a market and just say oh the market just works Right in sociology, we can't ever say, "Oh, it just works." We have to explain why does it work. Who are the people behind this? Who are the groups of individuals who are making this happen? Right. So that's kind of a fundamental thing of of sociology and why. Um, I mean, we understand social facts as important for the world and is is important for understanding the world. But at the same time, we have to be very critical of them at times when they don't accord with. Uh, the complexity of, of reality of the social
0: world. And sociology is the lens um, that allows us to ask these questions. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So that being said, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about sociology, sociology generally. um, And we also touched upon certain institutions. I mean, we talked about the institution of family, the institution of economy, the institution of, I mean, even even parenthood, I believe we, you know, briefly mentioned that. But we also have the institution of of law. And naturally, legal systems differ um, from society to society. But to understand, um, you know, how legal systems construct and influence our social realities and the social constructs within which human beings relate to one another and relate to the larger system of law, of justice, of the state, uh, perhaps we could delve into sociology of law and the kind of questions that, you know, sociology of law asks, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, why, why don't I put it like this? Um, what, what is sociology of law?
1: Yeah. So again, sociology of law is just kind of like a a subfield that is specifically looking at legal institutions and legal actors. So, you know, it's not just court, it's not just the courts and judges, but it's also law schools. Like what is the professionalization uh, and the norms and the kind of like ideology that's developed in law schools that trains people? uh, You know, there's this really Actually, I think there are a few articles that these people put out, but they were kind of looking at um these students who go into Harvard uh thinking that they're going to, you know, fight the good fight, they're going to become public defenders and all of this stuff, but they end up becoming corporate lawyers, right? So how do you go from wanting to defend the little guy to essentially being uh, you know, like a defendant Monsanto, defend...
0: you know? <laughs> yeah,
1: Exactly. And just maintaining those kind of power relations. Well, it turns out there that. Uh, you know, this is another institution that people internalize these roles, like, you know, Harvard has this very prestigious, like they have corporations coming in who are trying to essentially uh, pick off these law students, right? And so you have this kind of um, institutional norm where people are, are being expected to go into corporate law to make a ton of money. And so people kind of think like, oh, well, I'll just do corporate law for a couple years. Make a lot of money, pay off my student loans, and and then I'll fight the good fight. And then they end up not doing that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of like, what is this process where a person can start in one way and do, you know, a 180? And um, like, how does that work? Right.
0: Yeah. And I mean, throw in some of David Graeber's ideas on the institution of debt and student debt in particular, and then try to analyze that using a sociology of law lens and you can see this um, you know interesting relationship between law schools between the institution of debt and the way that that circumscribes a law student's decisions um, yeah. the way that it's, that, that yep. the way that that influences their sense of agency the choices mm-hmm. that they can make and you know going back to what you're saying the professional choices that they make so i think that sure. sociology of law kind of helps us analyze that. Like, how does this very particular phenomenon in Cambridge, Massachusetts at an Ivy League institution actually inform a human being's decisions in the world? And would you say that sociology of law, for example, um, helps us get a step closer to
1: understanding those decisions? (laughs) Sure. It, it helps us, but you also raise an interesting point of, of just like students needed to pay off their debt. I mean, one of the things about, you know, these subfields in sociology is that you can't really divorce any of these institutions from one another, right? So these institutions of law are going to be in relationship with economic institutions, with culture, with uh, family structures, like they're all interrelated in in different ways, right? So uh, that's important to keep in mind as we're talking about this. But yeah, um, that aside, if we're just focusing on sociology of law and some of the basic questions that we're asking, uh, one of the fundamental things is just what is law? You know, it's not this, again, sociology 101, it's not this natural process. It's a, um, it's a project by groups of individuals. Trying to shape the law uh, in a democracy, it's it's going to be uh, kind of rooted in popular sovereignty. But in a dictatorship or an authoritarian government, it's it's going to be um, different, right? It's or in um, in a monarchy, for example, each uh, the law is going to be shaped by different actors. So that that is going to affect it. But essentially, what we're interested in is just yeah, what counts as law and uh, law is a set of rules made by some form of government. So we we kind of talked about there are different ways of structuring social relationships. Well, uh, there's law, but there are also norms and mores. So uh, we can think of norms and mores as kind of like law like things within Society. So like not wearing a Paisley suit as a public defender in a really important murder case hey, Saul um, Goodman. is that's not law. Saul Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're Saul Goodman. Yeah. Uh, Got to go private to do that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but so that's a norm right? That's not, there's no law about that. Um is kind of ethical things. Um, you know, you borrow some money from somebody, you pay them back. If from, you know, you borrow some money from a friend, you pay them back. That's kind of a more, that's not a law, right? So a law is fundamentally tied to government. It's fundamentally uh, in the 21st century, fundamentally tied to the state. Um, so, but that doesn't really explain much of <laughs> what counts as law. Uh, the law is also uh, a set of legal rules. Um, it's a set of legal actors. Again, we have judges, we have attorneys, we have uh, prosecutors, public defenders. Uh, we have the Supreme Court, we have federal courts. Uh, there are any number of different institutions and actors within those institutions working together. Um, and they have informal laws, but they also have formal laws. Um So, you know, ethics violations for the ABA, right? That's kind of a more formal thing that keeps uh, attorneys acting, attorneys and judges acting in certain ways. Um, So that, uh, but that does bring in some complications uh, in in the sociology of of law um, when we're talking about human agency and structure. So, Um, There's just kind of the fundamental problem of the ambiguity of legal rules. So you have to have, uh, you have to develop an interpretative framework for understanding and interpreting legal rules because some of them are ambiguous, right? Right. So this is where uh, jurisprudence or the way that, that lawyers understand law and interpret law is really important because jurisprudence is kind of a form of ideology, right? It's how lawyers make sense of the law and legal rules when there is some ambiguity, right? Uh, and that kind of leads into the problem of legal discretion. Uh, there's in the common law system that we have here, there's a tremendous amount of legal discretion. And um, maybe, maybe Cam, you could speak a little bit to that, like the, just the, um, prosecutorial discretion, for example, or the discretion of police, you know?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think what you're talking about is where the rubber meets the road as far as individuals who are actors within the legal system because legal enforcement doesn't take place without human beings enforcing the law. Legal interpretation doesn't take place without judges or magistrates interpreting the law. And the decisions whether or not to bring a lawsuit or whether or not to file a criminal case do not occur without human decisions being made. And Mm -hmm. I think when you talk about legal discretion, um, it's in this area between sovereignty, the existence of law as an idea, and the human being that legal discretion comes into play. So, for for example, I mean, you know, you you had talked about the example of a police officer. Um, Legal discretion comes into play in the following example. A person's speeding down the highway. They're going 15 miles per hour over. They have a child in the backseat. One police officer could pull that person over, see that there's a child in the backseat, and say, hey, you're probably rushing to get your kid off to practice. Have a good day, sir, slow down next time. Legal Mm -hmm. discretion would be just the, the power to give a warning. Change that scenario, you have a white cop with a black person driving down the road. And that cop sees the same exact scenario and decides I'm gonna issue a ticket, you're speeding. Let's take that one step further. And the third cop comes by, same exact scenario, not only issues that person a ticket for speeding, but because of biases and because of um, prejudices decides, you know what, I'm going to not only issue a ticket for speeding, but because there's a child in the backseat, I'm going to issue a ticket for speeding and I'm going to arrest you for child abuse. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of legal discretion and the way in which A human being exercising power and authority within the construct of law has tremendous leeway in what types of law to enforce, whether or not to enforce it, and how hard to enforce it. So I don't know if that example um, gets to the crux of what you're trying to explain, but I think that that's an example of sort of um, how legal discretion works in the real
1: world. Right. And, and that kind of ties in with uh, the issue of the problem of race and gender bias in the law. Uh, and this has been studied ad nauseum in uh, sociology. I mean, uh, women on average get lighter sentences for the same crime as men do. Um, Blacks who kill whites are much more likely to get the death penalty than whites that kill whites, right? Absolutely. So there is race and gender bias in the law. Um, and there's there's been actually some really interesting work in social psychology that shows like all of us are prejudiced somehow. We think that we're not, but unconsciously we kind of are. The, the yeah, you're talking about implicit bias. Implicit bias, yeah. And the only thing that we can do is try to create uh, institutional mechanisms that mitigate those kinds of biases. Right. But again, it's been, it has been well-documented that there are these race and gender biases in the law. Um, I mean, you, you didn't even mention the fourth scenario where the cop pulls over the black speeder
0: and shoots somebody.
1: Yeah. And he reaches for his wallet and then the cop shoots him in in the face. You know, this was like an actual thing that happened. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that's uh one big problem in the law. And that kind of ties into these larger issues of the relationship between law and culture and identity, right? Um yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I think
0: what what we're beginning to discuss here uh could perhaps be best addressed by um talking briefly about, you know, like are there different are, are there different views on the law? Uh, within sociology, you know, like, are there different sociological lenses um, to analyze, like what the law is to start asking questions about legal discretion, like, for example, you know, law as a normative system. Sure. Um, is Is that yeah. something you can speak to?
1: Yeah, so there is uh the view that law is a normative system and that there's kind of a fundamental relationship between law and morality and that law is is kind of a reflection and an expression of society's deepest values. So you you can think of uh you know something like um the crime of murder or uh, somebody destroying property. So like, you know, laws about murder and property rights, we could imagine our reflections uh, of society's values. Um, but this this view of law is actually um, has some problems. It doesn't really account for the fact that there are different, different groups and individuals within society that hold different values, right? So our first episode, we were talking about the Dobbs opinion, right? Um clearly the Dobbs opinion is not an expression of society's deepest values when, when the majority what about of people... what about the witches? what about <laughs> yeah what about burning the women? So basically law is a normative system. Maybe some laws sure, but we can't say all law is an expression of a normative uh it, it, that it is a normative system, right There are political contestations within the law. Um, and this can be, this can occur with brute force or with, uh, you know, political negotiation. And again, going back to the development of, of capitalism and, um, forcing people into factories that was done with brute force, you know, um, that was people being vagrants being arrested, put on a post and whipped or jailed, you know? Um, so that's one way that, um, we can, (laughs) that law develops, Uh, but there's also the more kind of benign way of political negotiation, right? We come together and we kind of agree, um, you know, maybe under certain circumstances, uh, abortion is okay or something like that. Um, but But, you know, there are also very important legal issues that aren't going to be able to be solved with political negotiation. I think this is one of them. Um, but there there might be other ones. Another view of the law is that law is a game. And uh, I don't think this is cynical at all. Cam, you can speak to this as an attorney. Um, one of the things, um, so I don't know if we talked about this for the listeners, but I'm getting um, a, a law minor at University of Minnesota as well. So I've, I've actually been taking law classes. And one of the things that I've noticed is like, you're, you guys are are just learning to like make arguments and win cases, <laughs> which is, is really fascinating. Um, so this other view of the law is that uh the winner isn't the person with the superior moral position, but it's just the person with the best command of the rules and the facts that pertain to a particular case. It's it's kind of the, the person who has the best rhetorical devices at their at their fingertips and also the best um kind of uh legal aids to find obscure cases to support your case, you know, and that you can memorize those things. Um, so in in that sense, law is kind of a, a game between the prosecutor and the, um, the defendant, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, you know, one of the things that often happens in, in litigation is, um, you represent a human being, you represent their interests, you represent them as a person. And your goal, first and foremost, is your duty of loyalty to your client. Mm -hmm. And what that means is exactly what you're saying, putting forth the arguments that are going to win their cause, having a command of the procedural rules of the game so you can champion their cause, and being ready to Um, prepare your case more than the opposition in order to win the day. And Mm -hmm. sort of that, that from the clinical perspective of litigation is the end. The end is to move your client's case forward. In the criminal context, from the defense perspective, that is to achieve an acquittal for your client. Um, And oftentimes That means um, preparing your case in such a way that you have a command of the rules of evidence of criminal procedure in order to outmaneuver your opponent. Mm -hmm. And what is the end? The end isn't necessarily achieving morality, um, although that oftentimes comes along with it. The end is achieving the best result for your client in the same way that a doctor in the clinical situation Is bound by their Hippocratic duty to ensure the best medical outcome for their patient. And so, looking at it from the perspective of law as a game, I think that that um, perspective ought not to be lost when we are analyzing what motivates human beings within this paradigm to act the way they do.
1: Yeah. And, but would you say, like, even even though there is that kind of like law as a game, uh, there are rules to the game, right? That it should be consistent and that like the things that you can do within a courtroom.
0: Yeah. You're talking about procedural rules. And, you know, I I think that this is, you know, I think we briefly talked about substantive versus procedural uh, due process in one of our previous episodes. Um, But yeah, I mean, what you are referring to are rules of procedure, you know, like what... What passes muster in a courtroom is radically different than you know what passes muster you know at you know uh, when you're having a conversation around the dinner table rules of admissibility of evidence for example, you know there are certain um factors of reliability um that have to be demonstrated in order for evidence to even be admissible in a courtroom and so mm-hmm there's a litany of rules surrounding what type of evidence actually has the integrity to be brought into a courtroom. Like what is the authenticity of certain documents? What is the reliability of certain statements? And so from a procedural perspective, yes, the answer is um, you're bound by those procedural rules in order to even play the game Of trying to um, vindicate your client's position.
1: Yeah. Okay. So there's some procedural regularity and and logical integrity for how how this game plays out. Good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, those are just two kind of perspectives that are internal. Like that's how jurists think about law. Uh, the, The sociological perspective, however. way that we think about it is that uh, law is is simply a part of the social order or social structures so again these structures are not natural processes but um you know at some point in history groups of people decided that uh you know this is how these are the laws that we're going to write you know um so The judge and any kind of person in Congress, these are just human beings who put on their pants one leg at a time, go to work and create, you know, the legislature creates laws. Uh, The judge adjudicates laws, right? Um, But it's really important to keep in mind when we're talking about these kind of big ideas like law and legal institutions, it's composed of human beings, right? Uh, So we can never um, forget that. Um, And this is really important when we start to think about possible asymmetrical power dynamics within the law uh, and how that arises as well. Uh, We like to think that um, law is is a fair system, but uh, like I said, there are race and gender biases there. So uh, I think that really complicates the idea of fairness and equality before the law. So... And it can often be a minority within society that imposes this legal order as well. That's important to keep in mind. So, uh, the the sociology of law is, um, again, just kind of dedicated to studying the legal behavior of human groups. We're studying patterns of behavior and how these patterns are relatively stable. Some of the ways that these are stable, so we can think of, uh, roles and hierarchy. Again, we talked about roles before, uh, Attorneys are expected to perform a certain role. They're they're expected to fight for their clients, um, or the prosecutor is is kind of expected to win as many cases as possible to you know move up the ladder in their career. Secure well. those
0: convictions. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um, so, you know, uh, going back to the role, it's a, it's a role is basically a prescribed set of obligations and uh, rights that are attached to a certain social position, right? Uh, again, there's some room for improvisation within these roles, but uh, the, this improvisation is always going to be delimited by the institutions that they're working in, Um So hierarchy is a is a little bit different. Hierarchy is is yeah. If you could kind of lay this lay this
0: out, uh, hierarchy, what it is, how it functions, and you know maybe talk about hierarchy in the sense of dictating some of the roles
1: that you were just mentioning. You know how how does that work? Yeah. So hierarchy in general uh, organizes roles uh, so that work gets done in a more or less efficient way. And it's also a means to control how people improvise within these roles, right? So the American Bar Association is going to uh, be able to uh, sanction lawyers, right, or charge them with ethical violations. Yeah. And, you know, the state, example, attorney,
0: a state attorney state attorney, regulation, for example, you know, has the ability and the powers of coercion for licensed attorneys, for example. Right. You know, same, same with a medical board. Um, Same with, you know, CPAs, you know, these are sort of the professional rulemaking bodies that have um, hierarchical
1: powers over subordinates, the licensees, you know. Right. And uh, another thing that hierarchy does, uh, it serves two functions. um, Or sorry, yeah, we talked about that. It serves two functions. But uh, the other thing that I wanted to to briefly mention is I think this, this concept of hierarchy is actually one of the kind of dogmas of sociology. Uh, There, you know, in anthropology, there's been plenty of work that shows that um, there can be ways of ordering society that is non-hierarchical that kind of uh, rethinks the uh, conception of authority, that even though there are uh, authority figures, we always have the right to question that authority or to go against that authority, right? So within these non hierarchical structures, uh, it kind of emphasizes spontaneous action between individuals and kind of a, um, a genuine. Robust substantive equality between individuals. So, I I, I just want to mention that because I I think that um, while hierarchy is an important way of thinking about how most institutions work, and most institutions are not most, a lot of institutions within our society are hierarchical, but um, a lot of them aren't, right? Uh, And they don't have to be. Uh, We can reimagine a lot of them um, as being non hierarchical. So uh, that leads to another way uh, that socio- sociology kind of tries to understand law uh, in terms of rules and discretion. We, we talked about this already, but one thing that I didn't mention is there's, there's a difference between law in the books and, and law in action. And this is kind of a foundational idea in sociology of yeah, law. And this,
0: this is critical.
1: Um, so why don't you jump in about that?
0: And I think that kind of goes back to some of what we were talking about with legal discretion. But if you yeah, could flesh but, that out a little bit.
1: Yeah. So obviously, law in the books. Uh, we we have a statute, or we have a, a precedent that's been set by a Supreme Court case, or whatever. Or um, we have the, or we simply have the idea of
0: so-called equality before the law, and then you have the situation as such, living in the United States.
1: Yeah. So like the rule of law as uh, kind of law in the books. Yeah. So you know, this law in the books is kind of like the the formal. Um, codification of laws but then law and action is drastically different because of all this discretion and because of the very human uh, you know the problem of humans (laughs) you know Um, the way that law in the books is actually enforced can often be radically different uh, in action in the real world um, so that's kind of an important distinction to make and understand when we're talking about law that there is a, a fundamental difference between law of the books and law in action or law in the real world, and again because of this discretion and um, and human agency, for example. So, uh, final thought on law as an institution. So institutions are are recipes for action that we take for, for granted yet kind of treat as sacred. So I, I touched upon this a little bit at the beginning, but thinking about families, right? Families seem natural and normal, right? And for certain parts of, of the United States, uh, the family structure of a uh, heterosexual man and woman, right? Um, for them is normal and natural, And that it it becomes sacred because we take it for granted, right? That's just kind of that it becomes normalized. It becomes naturalized as that's just what a family is, right? Right. Families don't need to be explained. Rather, those who lack a family or a family structure need to be explained. Orphans need to be explained. Bachelors need to be explained. Extended kinship. Yeah. And this applies to law too, because it's like, Law abiders don't have to be explained, but that's actually a really fascinating question. Why do we stop at a stoplight at two o'clock in the morning? <laughs> you know, when there's <laughs> nobody around. Yeah, that's a fascinating question.
0: I was actually, one, um, I actually had this this uh, this body camera pretty recently, where it was a high speed chase, and the person took a left, like going like eighty miles per hour, and turned on their blinker. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was it was a me- it was a full-blown meth chase yeah and then went
1: to the stop side and hit the blinker <laughs> yeah i mean i i think that talk about of, internalization you know yeah that's internalization it, it becomes a reaction that you do but like you guys maybe every once in a while just just try something out and, and break a law and see how you feel see, see what it's like <laughs> exercise the you know Exercise your anarchist calisthenics there. Um, So, but (laughs) it's it's, it's the little steps that prepares for the big steps, right? Exactly. Yeah. But that's important because like law abiders don't need to be explained, but I think sociologically that's the more fascinating thing. Why do people internalize these, uh, you know, these kind of legal structures and still abide by them, even when they don't make sense to us, you know, Uh, waiting for a crosswalk when there's nobody around, like just cross the street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the people who violate those norms, who violate that kind of sacred law, the criminal, they're the ones that need to be explained, right? So that's kind of like the the sacredness of law and the law abider. Um, so uh, again, this is uh, tying this back into the beginning, like we kind of take law for granted and people just talk about laws. Oh, it's the law. Like you got to why am I doing this? Oh, it's because it's the law. Because of the law. <laughs> um, yeah. And it just becomes this kind of like sacred thing that we don't question, almost commonsensical. Um, and we, we,
0: we, we venerate it. We are yeah. obsequious to it. We obey it. We adhere to it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for cer- for certain people in positions of power and depending on their role, we worship it, you know, as sort of the overarching construct that gives us You know, continued meaning, structure, and order to our to our existence. You know, exactly. Um,
1: Yeah, yeah. So, going back to a a couple more things about just institutions in general in sociology, how we think about institutions. um, There, they can be constraining. I think this is very apparent in the law. It often is constraining, but at the same time, it can be a source of power, right? So uh, you can bring a lawsuit against a corporation or a business or another individual, if they kind of hurt you, right? You have that power. Uh, So it, 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 it's kind of this paradox It can constrain you, but at the same time, it can be a source of power. Right. Um, And like, many institutions, law is expansive and it can be even imperialistic, right? It uh, from, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you uh, used a website or uh, downloaded an app from your phone, you probably like clicked a thing, terms and agreements. That's a legal contract. Uh, If you're on your phone right now, you had to sign something for that phone. That's a contract, right? Almost every aspect of our life is determined by law in some way, even though we don't really think of it like that. Um, And that can be kind of the imperialistic nature of law that it becomes such a fundamental part of our everyday life within that, and we don't even realize it really and it's, mi- and it's and its
0: mission creep has a logic of its own and it's constantly expanding into new spheres right. um and it is constantly developing new adherents new people to obey it to mm-hmm. operate under its legal operating system that's the way you got to think of it you know i know that sounds very technological but that is what we mean when we talk about sort of the imperialistic logic of law. And, you know, we'll probably develop that more in some future episodes, Josh. We could right. dedicate an entire um, conversation to um, in the imperialism of law. But right. I do
1: think that that is at least exemplary of sort of how it works, you know. Sure. So one more thing, just kind of tying us back into socio like what we're doing in sociology in general. Um, The legal law as an institution, when we understand these roles, this hierarchy, how institutions operate, we can start to apply that to other institutions. We can apply that to higher education. We can apply that to a prison system. We can apply that to the marketplace. We can apply that to family structures right the father the mother the non-binary parent whatever it is like you know as the authority figure or something like that it sounds kind of weird to think of the family as an institution but it is we have roles that we fulfill yeah um even in in uh you know big groups of friends for example those can those can be institutionalized in some way like well, I, I mean, think, think about of all of the time.
0: sociological research that has developed just around frat culture over the past decade. You know,
1: I am glad that I have not read any of that. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you can speak to that. Uh, hopefully, they wrote something about Brett Kavanaugh's, uh, <laughs> um, whatever bong. Um, yeah, never mind.
0: Yeah, Bar- Bardo Kavanaugh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that said, Josh, um, I think you know we've covered some of the you know chief topics that fall under so- sociology and sociology of law, and I want to thank you for um, laying out these concepts. I think moving forward, it will help us, you know, be able to um, use a lens in which we analyze, you know, current events. Um, political trends that are taking place right now. Um, And also, you know, legal issues and social issues and cultural issues that uh, we're currently living through. And I think without these lenses, um, we're missing out on a very important way that we can analyze the situation as such. Um, Mm -hmm. So that said, I want to thank you for, you know, sharing these lenses with us. And I look forward to, Um, future episodes where we can apply
1: these. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. And uh, talk to you next time. All right. Take care, everyone.